The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Well, good morning, Downtown Church. It is good to be with you. In a second, I'm going to ask Mamie to come up and read our Bible passage for us. It's 1 John 3, 1 through 3, so you can go ahead and start turning there if you want to, but before we dive in, I just want to say uh, welcome to all of you, and a special welcome to visitors. As has already been said, I know there are some visitors here this morning. I'd like to acknowledge a few of them. I'd like to acknowledge uh, Matt and Rachel Renata. Where are you guys? All the way from New Zealand with us for the first time. Uh, it's such a privilege to have you all with us. Uh, there are a number of members of my and Rebecca's family over here somewhere. I think I'd like to acknowledge you all and just wave. I'll wave. Okay, good. And then um, if you are from out of town because you know me, you could wave too. And then so I know that some of you are here and that's wonderful. And if you're a visitor who doesn't fall into one of those categories, I want to apologize in advance because um, I'm Michael and I've been a pastor here at the church and involved the church for the last 12 years. And this is, and Rebecca has been the children's ministry director here. And this is our last Sunday before we moved to New Zealand, and so um, uh, forgive all of the um, uh, tears and whatnot uh, that will inevitably come. Um, so we're going to be in 1 John 3, but before we arrive there, I just want to say a word, um, which is to thank you, uh, the people of downtown church, and to just say how much of an honor and a privilege it is to be with you all up here. Uh, one last time, for a while at least, but in particular more than that, for the last 12 years. Rebecca and I came to downtown church in January of 2011, and you all have been our church family ever since. Uh, we have been preached to and taught and pastored and catechized here. We've been loved and cared for. Our children have been, all four of our children have been born and baptized here, and you are our church family. And family is forever, and so as we uh, move into the next phase of our journey. Um, we love you, and you have, being with you all has been one of the great honors and privileges of our life, and we will not uh, forget that. We will remember the gifts that we have received from downtown church, and we will carry those gifts. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> um, we'll carry those gifts with us. You, when you are moving, you think a lot about the things that you will remember. You know, what will I remember? What food will I remember? What, you know, people will I remember? But I also have been thinking about memory a lot for the last several years for a much sadder reason, uh, which is that I have lost my grandfather and my beloved aunt, and my wife has lost her beloved grandmother, uh, all to Alzheimer's in the last few years. And I know that many of you have had the experience of having a loved one struggle with Alzheimer's or severe dementia. And these diseases are so terrifying to us because they strike at one of our most precious faculties, which is the ability to remember. So I've been thinking about memory. And when someone gets Alzheimer's or extreme dementia, as you know, at first you can relate, right? Like, I've lost my keys. I've forgotten where I parked, you know? But by the end, um, our loved ones have often forgotten how to answer the most basic questions of their lives. Questions like, who am I? And where am I? And when am I? And when our loved ones become unable to answer those questions, they're not just alienated from us, they're alienated from themselves. 
And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that we as Christians, likewise, have got to be able to remember how to answer the question, who are we, where are we, when are we, as disciples? I want to suggest to you that our life with God depends on our ability to know at the deepest core of our beings, as we just sang, who we are and where we are and when we are. And yet oftentimes you and I, like our loved ones struggling with Alzheimer's, have forgotten the answers to those questions. And while our loved ones struggling with memory disease are victims, we have often willingly embraced a forgetfulness. We have often actively resisted remembering the truths about who we are and where we are and when we are. And when we as disciples forget who we are and where we are and when we are, our life with God becomes more and more estranged. We need a prescription for our forgetfulness. We need an antidote to the disease that causes us to forget the truths about our life with God. And I want to invite Mamie to come up and read what I take to be John's antidote to our forgetfulness. See, here in 1 John 3, 1 through 3, the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel that we've been going through as a church penned a letter to a group of believers, and he gave them in three short verses a summary answer to the questions, who are you, where are you, and when are you as a disciple? And down to churches, I am up here with the honor and privilege of unpacking the word one last time for a while. I want to take the opportunity to help us hear from John how he would answer these questions so that you and I can walk out of this room better equipped to live the life of discipleship to which God has called us. So Mamie, would you please read for us from 1 John 3, 1 through 3, and this is from the NIV. John 3, 1 through 3. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. For all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right there in those three short verses, John has given us his summary statement of how to answer the question, who are we as disciples? Where are we as disciples? When are we as disciples? Let's look at each one of them. First of all, who are you? Who am I? Who are we as disciples? John tells us right out of the gate, see what great love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. John begins his discipleship lesson by drawing our attention to the world-changing reality that you and I are sons and daughters of the living God. Now, in the immediately preceding verse that we didn't read, John reminds us that to be sons and daughters of God is a big deal. It requires a whole life change. In the, just the previous verse, John has told us that if you know that Jesus is righteous or just, then you know that everyone who practices righteousness or practices justice has been born of him. In other words, to be a child of God 
is to be someone whose character bears a family resemblance to their creators. This is a deeply world-changing reality to share in the family resemblance of our God. But here in verse 1 of chapter 3, John's focus isn't on what it means to be a child of God, but on the fact that we're children of God and how we got that way. John wants to draw us our attention to the fact that we are sons and daughters of God and remind us of the source of our life as sons and daughters. Look at, behold, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. John doesn't want us to just see that we are children of God. He wants us to know that he's only the overwhelming, indescribable, unquenchable, over-the-top love of the Lord that has made sinners like you and me to be children. John grabs us by the shoulder. It's like he's shaking us. He's saying, look at the love. Look at the love of God. Pay attention. Don't forget. Remember God's love that has made you to be really and truly, your deepest identity, children of God, sons and daughters. And it's almost like he knows that we won't believe it. So he says, and that is what we are. Look at the love that has made you children of God. That is what we are. It's like John is telling us news that's too good to be true. News like the war is over. News like the cancer is in remission. News like everyone in the car was safe. News you can hardly believe. That's the kind of love that John has taken us and pointing to and say, look at it. Remember it. Don't forget it. Who you are, son and daughter. Why? Solely, strictly, entirely because of the love of God. Downtown Church, I want to remind you I want to call you to remember the love of God that has made you to be his children. Don't forget it. Remember who you are. Children of the king, the beloved of the father, solely because of his great love. That's who we are as disciples. But secondly, where are we as disciples? John tackles this next. The very next line after the one that we've been looking at, he says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John's telling us that we often experience rejection where we are in the world because the world didn't know Jesus, so it won't know us, God's children, either. But the point here is that John is telling us, where are we as disciples? We are in the world. Now, you might be thinking, duh, Right? Not exactly anything to write home about. Of course we're in the world. But it's more complicated than that. You're going to have to go with me here for a second. All right? It's more complicated than that because John uses the language of the world in several different ways, in his gospel and in his letters. On the one hand, most obviously, the world is just creation, God's good creation that he has made. Remember, when we started studying the story about Jesus that John tells in the gospel, what does he say? In the beginning, God created the whole world through Jesus. Right? And so we know that the world is God's good creation that he has made. And John believes that and tells us that. But more often in John's gospel and his letter, John uses the language of the world to remind us that God's good creation is at the same time the site of a cosmic conflict between God and God's enemies, sin and death and the devil. 
John wants us to remember that God's good creation is also a battlefield between God and all the forces that array themselves against God. This is why in 1 John 5, John will declare that while we are born of God in Christ, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Did you catch that? So where are we as disciples? We're in God's good creation, but we are in God's good creation gone horribly wrong. God's good creation gone horribly wrong. Why? Because of our sin and because of the way that our sin has made room for the enemy to gain territory in God's good creation. This is why for John, we don't start out in like some kind of neutral space and decide to opt in to the family of God. No, there's a battlefield in God's good creation, and you're either on one side or the other. This is why John can say harsh things like, if you are not children of God, you are children of the devil. That sounds like really harsh language, but John's point is God's good world has become a battlefield, and all of humanity has been caught up in the conflict. And downtown church, we know this too, do we not? We have been here for a while. We have been through some hard times together, have we not? These last 12 years as a church. We have seen the influence of the evil one out there in the world. And we've seen the influence of the evil one right here in our own body and right here in our own human hearts. We know deep down that God made the world good, but something has gone horribly awry. And John uses this language of the world to tell us, you disciples are in my good place gone haywire because of your rebellion and because the power of my enemy, who John calls the devil. That's where you are. And yet, and yet, even this is not John's final word on where we are. Because for John, the deepest truth about where we are as disciples is that we are in God's good world, gone horribly wrong, but reclaimed by the God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die for it. See, John wants us to know, where are you? God's good world turned into a battlefield decisively claimed by God. Decisively claimed by God to rescue and to save. We, where are we as disciples? We are in the world that God loves so much that he became a part of it to save it. We are in a world that God loves so much that even when every human turned from God, even when the world was corrupted by the devil, even when God could have scrapped it, torn it up, thrown it into the wastebasket, what to do instead? No, God said, I love this place so much, I just can't quit it. And he became a man in Jesus and came to rescue us here in the world. That's where you are. You are in a world created good, gone horribly wrong, rescued and loved by a God who just would not stop, would not give up, just couldn't quit it. Do you know that that's where you are, downtown church? When you get up in the morning, when you go to work, when you walk into the classroom, when you walk into the office, when you walk into the hospital, let me tell you where you are. Let me tell you where you are at the deepest level. You are in God's good world, filled with the wreckage of our enemy and our evil decisions, but finally and fully being rescued by the love of God. 
when you wake up in the morning and you wonder where you put your keys and how to find your car, let me tell you, where you are is on God's good world reclaimed by the king who would not let it go. That's where you are. Who are you? Children of God. Why? Because of God's great love. Where are you? In God's good world being rescued. Why? Because of God's great love. But what about when are you? What time is it as disciples? John turns to that next. Brothers and sisters, John says, we, kids, we are God's children. When? Now! Right? Do it with me. We are God's children now! Right? That was the point of the passage that Miss Rebecca had us memorizing. What time is it? We are God's children already, but we are not yet what we will be. But we know that when Jesus appears... We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Here John wants to tell us what time it is, and he tells us something kind of weird. You live your life between the already rescued by Jesus and the not yet what God will do to you when Jesus returns. Where are you as disciples? You are living your life between the time when God rescued you and made you his child and the day when God will transform you into what you were made for, to something so beautiful and incredible that you cannot even imagine it. How will that happen? John tells us that too. Why aren't we what we will be? Why don't we know what we will be? Because what we will be is like Jesus. See, that's what discipleship is all about. To be a disciple is not about what you know. It's not ultimately about what you do, it's not about what you think. To be a disciple at the end of the day, at the deepest level, is to be like Jesus. And that journey has started already, and it won't finish until our Lord returns. Why? Because it is the vision of our Lord who loves us and gave himself up for us that will so transform us that we will become the people that we are always made to be. So that when Jesus returns, we will not just behold our destiny. We will become our destiny. Human beings fully alive with the life of God. Fully alive with the life of God as our Lord Jesus. That's where you are. And that's when you are. Downtown church, let me remind you. When you are is at a time when you can hardly believe what God has already done in your life because he's done so much. And you are living at a time where you can't even imagine what he's got planned for you. But you know it's going to be good because it's going to look like Jesus. Because you're going to look like Jesus. We will see him as he is. To be a disciple is to be, among other things, a person who knows that they are a child of God, made such by his love, living in a world gone off the rails, but rescued by his cosmic intervention, and awaiting the day when he will return and finish his work in a way that we cannot even imagine who are you? You are former children of the devil, lost in the darkness, but liberated by God 
Where are you? You are in a world so messed up that you know you can't fix it, and yet that God has reclaimed and promised to make new from top to bottom. When are you? You are living in the day when you can look back to that rescue operation at the cross and look forward to the day when Jesus returns and know as sure as the next breath in your body that God will reclaim everything that's been his, that every tear will be wiped away, that there will be no sorrow or pain because Christ came not just to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, praise God, John tells us that, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, but also to destroy the work of the devil. And to rid this world, this good creation, of every glimpse of the devil's darkness. And fill it up with the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's who you are every single day, every single breath. That's who you are. And you are who you are and where you are and when you are strictly and solely and completely and unadulteratedly because God chooses to make you who you are and put you where you are and situate you when you're, it's all grace, it's all gift, it's all love, it's all mercy. You didn't earn it, you couldn't earn it. It's gift from top to bottom. Who are we, where are we, when are we disciples? It's just a gift, which is what makes what John says next so surprising. Everyone who has this hope purifies themselves as Jesus is pure. Now, if you've been tracking me, you should be going like, oh, what? That sounds heretical. I thought Jesus did the purifying. Why is John, he's told me who I am as a gift, where I am as a gift. When, why is he now turning to me and saying, now, now purify yourself? What, what's he talking about? This seems kind of misguided. If we've been tracking John's line of thought, we're thinking Jesus is the one who transforms. Surely all we have to do is sit down and receive the work that God's doing in our lives. If you thought that, John wants to correct you. John wants to make sure that you know that does not follow from all the things that he's been saying. No, for John, as the late theologian John Webster put it, John believes that Jesus changes human lives by altering the conditions under which they exist. Let me say it again. John wants us to see that Jesus changes our lives by altering the conditions under which we exist. In other words, in other words, when we were slaves to sin, when we were in the world under the devil's dark power, when we were lost in darkness, separated from Jesus' sanctifying, atoning work, discipleship was impossible. Being like Jesus, a complete non-starter. But oh, because of the liberating love of the Lord Jesus, discipleship, formerly impossible, has now become a glorious possibility. John wants us to know that Jesus has liberated us and made us his children and then sent us out to get to work living what we will be when he returns. John wants you and I to know that he did not break the chains off your wrists so that you could sit there in the prison cell waiting for something else to happen. No, he broke the shackles off your wrists and off your feet so you could get your rear end out of that prison cell and get out to work in his world. If you ever thought 
that discipleship was simply about sitting around waiting for something to happen. Or just thinking about all the goodness. We need to think about all the good things that God has done. But if you ever thought that that's where it ended, John says, no, 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 no. Don't you know I have liberated you? I've made you my son and daughter. Now get off the couch. The formerly impossible thing to live like Jesus is now possible. Not because of you, but because of my spirit, because of my power, because of my liberating work in your life. Get off the couch and seek to become like me. Seek to become the people that I am making you to be. Seek to be what I am giving you to be. Not for your own sake only, of course, but for God's glory and for the good of your neighbor. So how do we do that? What does it look like to do discipleship in the meantime? Once we know who we are and where we are and when we are, how do we get to work in this whole purifying yourself as Jesus' pure business? Well, you know, Richard, you guys could do another sermon series on 1 John after we get done with the gospel, and, you know, you could unpack that because John talks about it a ton. He gives us all sorts of ideas about how we begin to become who God is giving us to become, you know? He talks about uh, uh, brotherly and sisterly love. He talks about community. He talks about repentance. He talks about spending time with Jesus. All sorts of ways that we begin to live out this life of discipleship. But I want to point out just one, and it's the one that John talks about in this very same chapter that we're in, chapter 3. And this is one way John tells us to purify ourselves as Jesus is pure, to live like Jesus. And it's that we purify ourselves as Jesus is pure by imitating Jesus' sacrificial love. This is the message that we have heard from the beginning, John says in chapter 3, that we should love one another. And how do we know what love is? John tells us that too. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Do you see what John's doing here? He's saying, you've been made a child of God, put in the world that I'm reclaiming, and now you are freed to follow in my footsteps. And where, Jesus says to us, did my footsteps take me? They took me to the cross out of love for you. How do you follow in my footsteps? You follow me to the cross in love for others. Now, of course, most of us, most of the time, uh, are in situations where we have to die for each other. So you might be thinking, well, like, well, this has not got a lot of application for me. If a situation ever comes up where I've got to die for somebody, I've got to do it. But otherwise, what's the big deal? No, 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 no. John says, no, look, Jesus died for you. That's a pattern. How do you lay down your life for others? Now, can you think of some ways that you can lay down your life? For, yes, you can think of a million ways, right? You can think of a million ways. That if, if the, the logic goes, if Jesus died for you, then certainly you can lay down your life by and then fill in the blank, right? And we could talk about all sorts of ways. And John wants us to talk about all sorts of ways. He wants us to imagine that Jesus' self-sacrificial love is a pattern that we can apply all over the place. But it is interesting that John himself only gives one specific example. Now, John's saying you can lay down your life for your sisters and brothers in Christ in all sorts of ways, okay? All sorts of ways. But he only gives us one example, concrete. And I do not think it is accidental. I do not think it is a mistake that the one concrete example Jesus gives of self-sacrificial love is care for the poor. 
1 John 3.17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see what happened there? John starts at chapter 3. Let me tell you who you are. Children of God, made so by God's love, in God's good world that he is reclaiming, awaiting his return. Now get to work living like it. Follow in his footsteps. Lay down your lives for others. You can do that in all sorts of ways. Here's one specific example. If you see a brother or sister in need, and you close your heart towards them, how does the love of God remain in them? John is suggesting that if we are not actively opening our hearts in response to the needs of our brothers and sisters, it's a sign that we may have forgotten who we are. It's a sign that we may have forgotten who we're called to be. It's a sign that God's love is not doing the work that God gave it to us into our lives to do. In 1 John 2.17, John had come after them for their pride in possessions, which he said put them in the side of the world that is passing away. He said some of you are addicted to a certain way of thinking about money and stuff. It's all passing away. And if you cling to that, you're on the wrong side of this battle. Let it go. Put to death that obsession with money and stuff and status and power. But now John returns to the theme of these goods of the world, and he says, you can use those worldly possessions. You can use them as tools to follow in the cross footsteps of Jesus. You can use what God has given you to answer, to see your brother in need, and then answer their cries. Discipleship, one way we purify ourselves as Jesus is pure, empowered by God's love, is by putting to death the way of the world in regards to our stuff. And when we put that worldly way to death, putting the Jesus way in its place. And the Jesus way is pretty simple. It says God calls us to lay down our lives, all of who we are, for those who are in need. But I think John is doing something even more interesting here. I think he's doing something even more interesting here. He's not just saying, he could have just said, hey, if you're going to be a disciple, give to those who are struggling. We would have gotten the message, right? That's good enough, okay? He didn't say that. He said, if anyone sees your brother and sister in need and closes their hearts towards them, John is very astute here. He's doing something very provocative here. He knows, he is pointing to the moment where you or I see someone who is in need. Right? When we see a need, when we hear the cry of the poor, and there is a moment, there is a two roads moment, and one thing that we can do when we see the needs of the world is we can proactively shut our hearts down towards them. See, God knows that we are God's children, and that when we see suffering because we are made in his image, it comes out of us that we ought to care, right? That we ought to respond, but we can shut that down. We can shut it down. And so often we do, do we not? John is drawing our attention to the moment. He has earlier said, look at the love of God. Now he's saying, look at your broken, hurting brothers and sisters and do not shut your heart towards them. Lest you shut your hands towards them, lest you discover that the love of God 
It's not doing the work in your life that God wants it to, that God's given it to you to do. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but this is a word for me today. I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel like a professional heart closer. Our world has a lot of pain to see, and there are a lot of opportunities to shut our hearts to the cries of our needy neighbors. And I think, I think that it's important to remember, as American Christians, in this city at least, that we actually come from a long history, a long line of Christians seeing their brothers and sisters in need and closing their hearts towards them rather than opening them wide. I don't think we can afford to forget that the majority of our American Christians and brothers and sisters saw the pain of slavery and shut their hearts towards the cries and refused to open their hands in love and liberation. So much so that the vast majority of written defenses of slavery were written by pastors in this country. I don't think we can afford to forget the history that during the Jim Crow era, our spiritual forebears again and again saw the cries of their brothers and sisters in need as their possessions were stolen by the millions and their lives were taken by the thousands and closed their hearts to those cries. I don't think we can forget right here in South Memphis that when brothers and sisters, black and brown brothers and sisters, led the protest to confront segregation, too many American Christians saw the cries and actively shut their hearts and therefore their hands towards that movement for love and justice in this place and in this city. And I I don't think we can afford to forget that every single day, black, brown, white, rich, poor, every single one of us has the opportunity to see our brothers and sisters in need under overpasses, at borders, in prison cells, starving around the world, facing religious persecution, crowded in failing classrooms. We see them and we face the temptation to shut down our hearts. And when we fail to open up our hearts, Hear me, brothers and sisters, we are not failing to pass the woke test. We are not failing to keep up with the times. We are not failing to embrace an evangelism strategy that will get these young people to care about all that justice stuff. That's not what we're failing. We are failing to be disciples of Jesus, who says, I made you to be sons and daughters. I made you to be like me. I made you to follow in my footsteps by laying down your lives for others. And if you don't do that, when the rubber hits the road with those who are suffering, how does the love of God remain in you? This is not a social agenda. This is not a distraction from gospel ministry. Opening our hearts to the poor is not all that discipleship is. But according to John, it stands at the center. Because what it stands at the center of discipleship is love. It is learning to love like Jesus because Jesus has made loving like Jesus possible by dying for us, by rising for us, by giving us his spirit, by atoning for our sins, and by destroying the work of the devil. Brothers and sisters, the good news that we are talking about this morning is that we have been rescued so that we 
might be like Jesus. If you don't know the Jesus that we're talking about, can I invite you to hear the story again? Can I invite you to meet a God who looked at a world in open rebellion and who just couldn't quit it? Can I invite you to hear the message of a God who couldn't quit his rebellious world so he became a part of it in Jesus? Can I invite you to hear the story of a Jesus who loved this world so much that he died on the cross for it? for your sins and for my sins as part of this rescue operation. Can I remind you of the story of a Jesus, of a God who became human, who died on a cross, but who would not stay dead. But early one Sunday morning, one Easter morning, he was raised from the dead. He got up, power in his hands to give resurrection life. Can I remind you of the story of a God who became human, who died for you, who raised, was raised from the dead for you, and who ascended and returned to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, a God who rules at his right hand right now? Can I remind you the story of a God who so loved you? And so love the world that he promises to make anyone who comes to him a son or daughter. If you don't know that, Jesus, at the end of this service, we're going to have elders and community group folk up at the front. Would you please come hear more about him? Would you please come find out that this God has the answers to the questions you've been asking about who you are? And what life is all about. And downtown church, if you do know that story, if that is your story, given that that is many of our story, Jesus' story, can I remind you of who you are? Children of God, solely because of his love. Can I remind you of where you are in this beautiful, incredible, shipwrecked world? that God so loved that he came to it to save it. Can I remind you when you are already so different from what you were and yet not even a shadow of what you will be when Jesus returns? And downtown church, having reminded you of who you are and where you are and when you are, can I remind you and will you remind me to get off up the dadgum couch and walk out those doors and to go into the world living like Jesus, living like what you were created for, what you were destined for, for the glory of God and for your own eternal good and for the sake of a hurting and broken world. Amen. Jesus, we ask that you would come by your spirit we ask that you would have been lifted up this morning in our preaching and singing and memorizing and praying, and that as you are lifted up, you would draw all people to yourself. Pray that you would draw people to yourself in this room who've never known you before. I pray that you would draw people to yourself who've been running. I try, pray that you draw people to yourself like me who need to hear the news again and again and again and again. I am who you say I am, that we are who you say you are. We, we are who you say we are because you love us. 
And God, when the history of the world gets written and all of the secrets are uncovered and you bring your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when you make all things new, would it be said about this time and in this place that here in Memphis there were a people who knew they were God's beloved children and who lived like it? Lord, we ask these things in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's pray. Our great and glorious God, we thank you for your family. Uh, it's because of Jesus that our hearts are hurting today, uh, full of anticipation of how you're going to use the Rhodes family and what you're going to do. Uh, but Father, feeling a deep loss, it's because you loved us first. Uh, it's because this is your church. We are your family because you have made us so uh, with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You have given us the vision of a new heaven, a new, new earth where we will feast one day in Zion. And we will drink anew of the fruit of the vine. And we will never grow hungry. And there will never be night. And there will be no tears or crying or pain because... Uh, glory will go on and on and on, and the feast will go on and on and on, and you will be at the center of it, and finally, you will be the center of our hearts forever. God, we long for that day, but in the meantime, Lord, we pray that you would bless Michael and Rebecca, Isaiah, Ames, Nova, and Jubilee. Father, that you would protect them that, God, you would strongly accomplish everything you intend for this move. Father, go before them, provide for them, encourage them. You have not promised to keep us from suffering, but you have promised to be with us in suffering and to use it for your glory. So, Father, even in the hard times, even in the moments when they are alone, they feel alone and abandoned uh, half a world away. I pray that they would find you to be everything you promised to be to them in more unique and deep and real ways than they could ever have experienced outside of this experience. Father, I pray for uh, Cary Bible College. I pray, God, that your hand would be upon it. I pray for Michael as he teaches. I pray for the students, Lord, that you would shape them and mold them a mighty army to go out into a world to bring the gospel of Jesus uh, to a lost and hurting world. Father, I pray that you would use the roads to call the students into the feast and the fellowship and the love. Uh, Father, I pray that you would create a community for them. You'd provide a church for them, uh, Lord, that you would just surround them in so many ways that as we get reports of how you've done that, that we would glorify you right here in this room and we would break into doxology uh, because of the good God that you are. Uh, Father, I pray for their parents, I pray for their friends, I pray for their family. Uh, Father, I just pray that you would strengthen them and help them in this time. Uh, Lord, help them to trust you with them. And uh, Lord, we look forward to exactly how you're going to answer those prayers. God, thank you so much. We pray your blessing upon them, and we do so in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.
I know God wants to leave us with a word this morning, and I know it's not goodbye, because I once heard Christians never say goodbye. They say so long, or farewell, or see you soon. So, but it's not that word either that you need. The word that I need and that you need is the one that God gives to us, the blessing that we just sang, the blessing that does not come from me or downtown church or anywhere but direct from the heavenly source. And so I invite you to stretch out your hands and receive this blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and bring you incredible peace now and forevermore. Amen.